grab a seat. Thank you for singing with us. Um, the, the good news that we talk about every single week here um, begins with what we're going to talk about for the next four weeks. Every single week we talk about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that through his life and death and resurrection and ascension, the life of Christ makes possible new life for us here on earth. It all begins with this, um, the coming of Christ. So today we're going to look at the circumstances that surrounded the people that called for a Messiah. We started into this journey by looking at the passage earlier that was read, Jeremiah chapter 33. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to be in Jeremiah 33 for the rest of our time this morning. In the Bibles in front of you, that's page 1,234. One, two, three, four. How about it? It's a Christmas miracle, right? Um, so if you want to follow along with us, we're going to be there. Not going to be on the screen again because we're just going to take a few bits of it as we move forward. But we want to take this morning and talk about, before we get to the birth, what was going on before the birth. Because this is very important detail to pay attention to, especially when we talk about hope. Because in order for hope to come, there needed to be a reason for hope to come in the first place. There needed to be hopelessness before there could be hope. Just like when we find ourselves strengthened, we needed to know what weakness was like before we knew what strength could feel like. In the same exact way, in order to know what hope really is, we need to kind of get a grasp of what hopelessness is. So to enter into this discussion, we want to set the scene of Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah was one of God's prophets in the Old Testament. And we've read some of his words before, um, and we read different ones here. In chapter 33, he is speaking to the nation of Israel. And right now, the nation of Israel is in exile, or they are being held captive by uh, these people called the Babylonians. Maybe you've heard of them. There is such a significant amount of oppression that is taking place that the nation of Israel is experiencing. Now, meanwhile where the Israelites came from, the, the areas in and around Jerusalem, what we read in the scriptures is that these places have been made desolate, that there are not even people or animals that are roaming the streets. So we have nation of Israel picked up from the Jerusalem area, taken over to Babylon, put down. While they're put down over here, their hometown has gone to, to ruin completely desolate, and they know that. They know it. So not only are they being oppressed over here, but their hometown has been wrecked. And so you can imagine some of the thoughts of the people as they're not only being held captive, but also asking questions like, has my home destroyed? If I somehow get the chance to go back home, will there even be a home to go back to? Because they're hearing these reports, they're hearing these stories as, as more exiles come in from Jerusalem to Babylon, they come in saying things like the temple has been destroyed. The places where we used to meet and eat and gather, it's all gone. There are not even animals that are walking around finding scraps of whatever. It's all gone. So the nation of Israel, a, a huge part of their storyline is calling for, asking for, desiring an opportunity to be saved from this. And it gets to a certain point in the nation of Israel where they are asking for 
a Messiah. Maybe you've heard that term before, Messiah, Savior, the, the one who will save us from this. Earlier on in the, nation, the, the history of the Israelites, they asked for a king. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, there are these, these different stories where they just demand this king. We need, we need a person, we need a human to lead us. But it got so bad in Babylon that they knew that the only thing that could save them at this point was God himself. And so they change their language. They go from we need a king to we need a Messiah. We need a human ruler to we need God himself to be the king above all kings, uh, to be the Messiah, to come down to save us. That's where they were. Against all hope, they needed hope. The thing that they needed most was the thing that seemed impossible to ever be again, hope. And we read about this, but before we read about this, we ask the question, where does a sense of hopelessness come from? We talked about it a few minutes ago. You can't experience hope without understanding what hopelessness feels like. In the same way, Sometimes when we wake up, we feel a bit stronger than we did the other day. We didn't know that until we felt weak. So where does this sense of hopelessness come from? Where were the Israelites? Because they knew they were without hope. They knew they needed hope. As people, how do we get to a place where we feel like the future is grim? That it is only going to be dark clouds in front of us from here on out. As a people, what are the things that happen to us that create apathy and pessimism. How do we get there? How do we even get to a place of hopelessness? What are the conditions that produce a negative narrative within us? I'm not saying we always find ourselves here. I'm not saying any of us find ourselves there right now. But this is exactly where the nation of Israel was, is that there wasn't a thing that they could draw from. Where does a sense of hopelessness come from? I'd like to present an answer. I'd like to present a thought, something that we can work with for the rest of today, is that our vision determines our degree of hope and influences our narrative. It's our vision. Where does a sense of hopelessness come from? I would present to you today, based on Jeremiah chapter 33, that it's our vision that directly determines how much hope we have, our degree of hope, our level of hope. And the level of our hope influences the narratives that we share. When we're asked, how's it going? What do we say next? <laughs> it affects our narratives. And, and I will say this. This is a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle where our vision affects our hope, influences our narrative, and then you could also imagine subconsciously or maybe even consciously, the more we say something, the more we think that thing lowers our degree of hope, affects our narrative in a negative way, and the cycle continues. Could you imagine this? Can you perceive this, how this could happen? Where the vision that we have in that day affects our hope, affects our narrative, affects our hope, affects our narrative, affects our hope, affects our narrative. I want to say this, that the vision we have in life has a direct influence over the amount of hope we claim to have 
about life. The vision, I'm talking physical sight, the vision that we have and how we perceive what we're seeing in life directly influences the amount of hope we claim to have about it. Vision is generally short-sighted. Some of you are looking at me. Some of you are um, being looked at by me, depending on where I'm at, right? We have vision. When we drive, we look forward, I hope. (laughs) Or at least to the side, maybe, quick glance. When we walk, we're looking down at where we're walking or we're looking up to where we're going or something like that. It's our vision that's often short-sighted, physically. And a lot of times our physical short-sightedness, which is natural to all of us, not, not really anyone can see super far away just because that's how our eyes work. We can see what's here and not necessarily down there. But when we get into the realms of imagination, which is hope, by the way, is imagining a better reality, It's imagining a better possibility. Our short-sightedness in our field of vision pretty much is our present circumstances and our current surroundings. What we are seeing and experiencing around us in in the short-sighted realm is what affects our hope, is what affects our narrative, because that's our vision. What we can see right here and what's happening around me in my life right here, this is my vision This is affecting the hope that I have. This is affecting my narrative. And God actually calls this out on us. Right here, Jeremiah 33, verse 10. God reveals this to us when he is speaking through Jeremiah. God says, you say about this place. God calls us. He gets us. And he says, I know you're hopeless. I know that's why you're calling out for a Messiah. God says, look what you say about the place that you're in is that it is without people or animals, that it is deserted, that it is desolate, destroyed, hopeless. God says your vision at times is short and the short-sightedness of what you can physically see in front of you affects your degree of hope for what you hope to be beyond and it gets thrown out of whack and our narratives mess us up and the stories we tell and the way that we talk about things gets affected and all of a sudden you get to a place where you're hopeless and you need a Messiah. Consider the narratives that you hear today, perhaps, around you. And if none of these resonate with you, perhaps you can think of another one. This is what I've heard recently. I can't believe this is how the votes worked out. This is another one I've heard. These homes and storefronts are abandoned. Maybe you've heard these narratives before. Maybe there are other narratives you've heard. Narratives like this. The local government can't figure anything out. It's a narrative that's being spoken over our city as we speak. That neighborhood is always so violent. Do you see how the narrative can affect our hope. Do you see how the narrative being spoken, whether it is warranted or not, whether it is valid or not, whether it is true or not, can affect our vision, can affect our hope, can affect our narrative, can affect our vision, can affect our hope. If you can see this, then you can understand the condition of Jeremiah's audience. Their short-sighted vision was formed by their perceptions of their immediate surroundings. 
Emphasis on the word there. Their perceptions, which could have been different from someone else's perception. But all of a sudden, you get the mob mentality, if you've ever heard of this, this idea of strength in numbers. Well, if that person's going to be negative, if that person's going to be negative, and if that person's going to be negative, I'm the fourth, the fourth person in the friend group, I'll be negative too, right? Because it's just easier that way. It's easier when our neighbors are negative. We'll just be negative with them. And their short-sightedness based on their perceptions of their immediate surroundings. This results in a state of utter hopelessness. And sometimes this is an all too familiar state of being. Sometimes this is all too familiar to us. And this reality, whether we're wrestling with it now or whether we might in the future, we certainly do in this season of Advent. We ask a couple of questions. Is what should one do when the surroundings look less than ideal? How do we move beyond a short-sighted vision? These are very applicable questions. It's when you're driving to wherever you're going and you see for sale, for sale, foreclosure, for sale, broken window, boarded up front door. Perhaps you see that when you drive to this facility. How do you deal with that? How do you talk about that? What happens when the narrative becomes so overwhelmingly negative on the news, in the newspaper, on the radio, that there doesn't seem to be any room whatsoever for hope? This is exactly where the Israelites were. This is exactly where the Israelites were. They had absolutely no margin for an ounce of hope. (laughs) Kind of heavy, right? <laughs> God reveals something through Jeremiah. Very significant, I want us to grab onto this this morning. Is that when it comes to his creation, God has the final word. Yes, yes, amen, of course. That when it comes to his creation, his people, his land, the cities that he has built upon his shoulders, he has the final word. Why is that good news? Is because we often get consumed with our own words, do we not? We often get consumed with the words of others. The teleprompters, the journalists, the people reporting to the people who write the teleprompters, the journalists, the radio hosts. But when it comes to his creation, God has the final word in Jeremiah chapter 33, three different times, God says the phrase, I am will. Not I have. Not past tense. I've already done this, this, and that. What more could you ask for? He doesn't stop. God is resilient. One of our values here at Reachway Church, we believe that God is never giving up, and therefore we should not give up either. So what God says in Jeremiah chapter 33, three different times is I will. Verse 11, he says, I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before. In verse 14, God says, I will fulfill the promise that I have made. In verse 15, God says, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He's talking about Jesus. He says, I'm going to do it. He says, I hear you. I see you. I understand. 
But thankfully, you don't have the final word. God does. And he says, I will. Be gracious enough to be present in your suffering, yet glorious enough to see that things don't have to stay the same as they are. God has the final word in the narrative, and it stems from his vision of hope. And that's where we land today, is this vision of hope. Negative narrative? Yes, sure. Plenty of reasons. But God has the final word. And when it comes to the final word, it's the final word of the narrative. And it stems from his vision of hope. It is this particular time of year that we are in right now, God coming to earth in the personhood of Christ, human form, born in a manger. And it is this passage where we get a glimpse into the conditions of why he was so desperately needed. Now, we're reading about dialogue that took place 600 years before. You talk about being patient. You talk about having a waiting game. Perhaps when Christ was born, we get to that in a few weeks, but until we get there, you could imagine that period of time. You could imagine handing down this vision of hope to your children and their children and their children, and it gets handed down for 600 years. Hey, way back when we were in Babylon, when great, 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 great grandma and grandpa were in Babylon, they heard from this prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah said he was hearing from this guy named God, and God said he was going to send down a branch from the line of David. He was going to be a righteous one. He was going to save us. Do you see the vision of hope that gets handed down for 600 years? That is why when Jesus was born, people knew what was going on is because they shared a vision of hope against all hope. Sharing it, probably realizing and understanding that they weren't actually going to be the ones to receive the gift. But they knew that it was a gift that maybe, just maybe, their future generations could experience. And so you got to keep talking about the vision of hope. Christ coming down, born in a manger. It's not that we had it all wrong. It's not that we were in trouble. Hear me. God came down to be with us out of his love for us. End of story. Why do we know that it was love and not our trouble? John 3, 16, people. For God so the world that he gave, he sent to be with us, his only son. John 3.16 does not say because the world was so messed up. John 3.16 does not say there were just so many broken buildings. (laughs) We needed saving. No. Out of his great love for us and only his love for us, does God send his son. So this is what is being said in the coming of Christ that we will talk about for the next three weeks now. This is what is being said is to the one who sees a dim future, to the one who is concerned, to the one who can't find much around you to be hopeful about. Do not be afraid. These are the words 
that the angels say when they appear to the shepherds. Are you with me in the scene? Brightness. Do not be afraid. Do you know the first words that Jesus says to people after he is risen from the dead and walks around for a little bit? Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. I am here. This is the hope of the Advent season. This is the hope of Christmas is that you do, need, do not need to be afraid. That you can have a vision of hope that you can pass down. A lot of times I don't share the titles of my sermons because it's fun for me to name them and then we move on, right? <laughs> but this is today's. The days are coming. Dot, dot, dot. He said, God, through Jeremiah, says it, Jeremiah chapter 33, he says, the days are coming when the sounds of joy will once again fill the streets. When justice will be done in the land. When people will experience for themselves the love of Christ. The days are coming. And so we find ourselves in a very weird position in this Advent season. Where we are talking about something that happened, what do we say, 2,000 years ago? It's less than that, right? <laughs> By a little bit. Um, where we have to talk about, for four weeks, something that happened a long time ago. But then we have to try and pull together why that's important for us today. And how this story of God with us can speak to us today. That's the task that we have when we talk about these things. Is how can something that happened so long ago speak to me today? So the days are coming. And you could very well say, well, the days already came. Jesus is already here. Yeah, but look around and listen around. I hope, I hope that no one in this room is just kind of waiting for things to end. But I hope that all of us in this room can have a vision of hope for the future. Because can't he come down again, and hasn't he already come down again in the form of his spirit to dwell within us, amongst this body of people, to be the vision of hope out in the world? To hear the narratives, and to be able to respond to the narratives by saying, yeah, but the days are coming. The days are coming, and what if one of those days happens to be tomorrow when one of us decides to leave this place, tomorrow we wake up, there's an opportunity for us to be a kingdom participant in the world around us, and maybe tomorrow is the day that's going to come where light breaks into the little bit of darkness that you might experience. We just talked for six weeks about how powerful love is, the same love that God expressed to us when he came down to be with us, to be with us in our hopelessness we can be that same exact hope to someone else. So heaven on earth, that's our theme. It's what we talk about today. It's what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks because it's important for us to talk about these things, that heaven has indeed come down to earth. And I would contend that heaven is on earth right now. I think this is a little glimpse of it right here. And I think that the boarded up windows and doors in this neighborhood, I think they're going to be replaced soon. I think the days are coming. I really do.
I really do believe the days are coming where less and less people walk around with frowns on their faces. Why can't that be a vision of hope? Why can't something that small and perhaps insignificant be the most significant thing that we talk about? I believe that the days are coming when people who all over this world gather in churches, church buildings, disperse out into the world, and each and every single one of them is the church, is the love, is the person clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and driving around the person that doesn't have a car and writing handwritten notes to the people who don't get any mail and calling and texting the people who don't get phone calls and don't get texts. I believe the days are coming. I really do. Hope you, hope you do too. All made possible by God loving us so much that he sends his son. And it's the sends his son that we talk about this Advent season. So like we do every week, we're going to enter into this moment of response. So I would invite our, our worship team back up. We're going to sing a song like we do every week. We're going to pray like we do. Um, We're going to have these moments of stillness where we can, perhaps the only time of the week, be still. Perhaps the only time of the week where the only thing that we're hearing is the voices of our church family, the instruments of our church family, and just an opportunity for us to sit and be still. Maybe this is the only time of week where you get this. Please take advantage of it. Something that we do during this time is we receive communion where we take the elements, the everyday elements of food and drink, of bread and juice, and we do what Jesus did when he was on earth, when he was ministering to his disciples. He, he shows them the things that they ate every single day. We have bread every single day. We have, for them, wine every single day. And what it has meant before is what it has meant before. You're hungry, eat this. You're thirsty, drink this. But Jesus, for the very first time, attaches meaning for the very first time to these very ordinary elements. And he says, when you go down the road, when you journey with me in your life, consider the bread that represents my body broken for you. Consider the juice, consider the wine that represents my blood poured out for you. And if we can do that, all of a sudden we get into this moment where we can remember all of the other things that he's done for us as well. He did that on the cross. But then we can move to the scene of the empty tomb. And then we can move to the scene where you were baptized. And then we can move to the scene where you were able to see someone else get baptized. And we can move to the scene where we gave away 70 Thanksgiving meals to our neighbors. And we can move to the scene where we had a block party that 400 people showed up to. (laughs) What? On Halloween night in the North Valley, 250 kids roll through our parking lot. Can you not see what God is doing? Perceive it. And in these moments of response, as all of these things are flooding to your memory of what he has done, consider what he might just do. What is the end of when God says, I will? What's the hope that you have this morning? What do you long for God to say, I will, what? What is it? I will give you that opportunity to connect with that neighbor. 
I'll meet that need. As we respond this morning, I would encourage you to bring to mind what you hope God ends that I will with, because that is hope, is being able to perceive something that doesn't quite yet exist. Would you stand with me?